Hi everyone, my name is Essen and you are listening to the Brown History Podcast. Did you know that in a survey done in 2016 on cast in the United States showed that one in three delits in the United States reported being discriminated against during their education? Did you know that same survey revealed that one out of four delits in America said they had faced verbal or physical assault based on their cast? Did you know that it also revealed that two out of three delits, again in America, reported being treated unfairly at their workplace because of their caste. This research was done by a Dalit civil rights organization known as Equality Labs. Today's episode, we will discuss caste in America. And our guest today is Dalit rights activist Denmori Soundarajan. She is the executive director of Equality Labs and the author of a new book called The Trauma of Caste. Before we get started, if you would like to help out and support this podcast, please do consider being a patron. It really, really helps. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com. All right, let's get started. Uh, before we start, I would like to learn how to pronounce your name. Okay, so you say it is Denmori. Denmori, the Z is an R. Yeah, it's like yeah, like the Mori Povich show. That's it's a it's a very Tamil name. So the okay. Ra of Tamil is is written as Denmori. Wow, Denmori, and your last name? Soundararajan. Soundararajan. Okay, perfect. I got that. Okay, and uh, I know we're not saying your name, but can you tell me your name? Because it feels yeah. weird to have a conversation with someone you don't know their name. My name is Essen. Essen. Okay. Essen. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And thank you for the work that you do. Let's talk about your work. I read your book. I really, really enjoyed it. It was really, really important and very, very eye-opening. What is unique about your book is that any literature I read on caste is usually based and situated in India, in the subcontinent. But this is probably the first book that talks about caste, not just in India, but outside of India, in America, in our in our day and age, in our generation. So it's really eye-opening to see how caste is still alive in America. What was your parents' experience with caste? Because I understand they were from a village in India and then they moved to America, I think California. You know, so what was their experience like in India compares to their experience in America? And the title of the book is Trauma of Caste. What did trauma look like in America? Well, it's, you know, first of all, hello and hi, everyone <laughs> who's listening in. Um, you know, for me, it was really interesting. And I, I'm sure, you know, you don't have to be dull to empathize with this experience. But I think when you grow up in America, your parents are so focused on survival. You know, they, they need to kind of establish their life. They're worried about, you know, the racism around them. And they're trying to figure out how to make their way in this new country. And, um, and there's a lot of things that are unsaid because I think they see parents like their, their mode of operation is basically silence is best and no, no bad things have ever happened in, in all times and spaces, you know, it's just about focusing on being a model minority. But I think the thing is, if you're observant as a child and all children are, you know, you really understand what's in the gaps. And what I saw behind my parents' like pursuit of being respectable was all the trauma that they carried. You know, um, they had insomnia, they had panic attacks, they were struggling with the violence that they had survived, but didn't have containers to talk about it. And certainly at that time, they weren't like, you know, it's not like therapy was very common in the South Asian community. And the more I would ask questions as to like why my parents were different than other parents, especially because so many parts of their identity were in the closet, 
I started to etch at the truth of who we were. And, you know, it took me doing this school project about the, the Bhopal disaster, which was, this, you know, one of the largest corporate explosions in the world and right. impacted a ton of cast oppressed people. Um, when I read the magazine about it, it said, oh, you know, most of the victims were untouchable. And I remember looking at that word, I was like, why would someone be untouchable? This was like the worst thing. I, was, I, I just looked at that word, I was like, this sounds terrible. And then that got me, you know, researching about cast. And I remember opening up the encyclopedia because, you know, ladies and gentlemen, this was before the internet. So we had encyclopedias back then. And um, I looked it up there. And when I read about it, the first thing that came into my heart was like, what cast are we? Mm. What cast are we? And so then I ended up talking to my mom and that's when she gave me the talk, mm. you know, and it's like the saddest thing to watch your parents talk about a system that has dehumanized them, you know, because they don't have words to share how much they're afraid for you. And yet they have to make this very complex experience, very simple enough so that a child can listen to it, but not be be paralyzed by it, you know, and, you know, and I think as soon as I had a word for it, I started to get more and more clear about what my parents were talking about. And both of them experienced discrimination in their own context back at home, whether because they were the first generation of students to get reservation. And so they faced some discrimination in school. My, you know, my dad came from really extreme poverty and mm -hmm. really struggled from the intense experiences of violence and threats of violence because um, his family was agricultural workers. Um, you know, and, and also saw the ways that they did mutual aid, like my, my mom's side of the family, because they came up, a little, you know, one generation earlier, they would always house students and other people trying to come into the city from the places we were segregated to try to help them succeed. So it's just that it was always part of who I was. But I also saw no other South Asians around us had this experience. And then I was watching my parents hide and hide and hide. And I, as I, I tried to get a better sense of why, you know, why they were so afraid. And then I made a decision when I was like 18 that I wanted to be out. And so then I was out. And, you know, and my does, life has never been the same. What does that mean, out? Well, the thing is, is that if you keep quiet and you hide all the things that make you dull it, you know, you can live your life in the closet. That's what my parents did for many years. And it's terrifying. You're always worried about like making a mistake, you know, like people finding out, oh my gosh, wait, you're not Hindu, you're Christian. Wait, you know, usually if you identify from a caste oppressed faith, like Buddhism, Ravadasya, uh, Christianity, Islam, you know, you're already othered because those faiths, they, everybody knows that those faiths have so many people that are caste oppressed um, and that are explicitly Dalit in some cases that they'll immediately just stop inviting you. You know, they, they'll make you use a separate bathroom. You know, you'll, you're not invited back to the, the, the network gatherings, you know, for other immigrants that are Desi. So I think people just tried for a long time, you know, my parents tried for a long time, like other, you know, Dalits in the closet to just stay quiet as long as they could. But I didn't want to live that life because mm -hmm. I saw how much it harmed them. And I felt like if you can't come out in the United States, where else can you, you know, and that became like a lifelong journey to make it safer for other caste oppressed people because you know, the minute you come out, you face bigotry, you face, you know, harassment, gaslighting, you know, and 
in my case now, especially because I'm executive director of Equality Labs, insinuation after insinuation of bad faith actors that really don't want you to come out as Dalit, because as soon as you come out as Dalit, you're basically are going to point to the system, you know, that caused this with this cast, and also point to them, the people who are benefiting uh, from exploiting you know, millions of people. And that discomfort of the privilege is really um, what has created such harm for all of us. You, you mentioned how your parents are hiding or have been hiding for so many years. Now they're watching their daughter, you know, write a book about it. They're watching you do your activism, that you're in the front lines, your, your face is out there. How do they react to that? You know, the funny thing is, is that even though I came out when I was um, 18, uh, the reality is, is that by me coming out, I outed my family. Yeah, we have been true. in a, a many year journey as a family dealing with the consequences of that decision, you know, and, and I think a big part of it is, is that, you know, we face a lot of violence as a family, you know, um, I have gotten rape threats and death threats, people have tried to attack my parents. Um, they wanted to find their address and then beat them up and, you know, show them, you know, you know, how to, you know, make their daughter shut up and all of that. Yeah. Um, but I also think that they've found tremendous healing, you know, because I don't, you know, I don't think they expected to have a daughter that could so deeply see them and so deeply see their pain and then want to turn that pain into power. And so the incredible thing about both my parents is that whenever I've had to testify or, you know, be part of these like, you know, campaigns, and right now we're in a current campaign to make cast a protected category in Seattle. The amazing thing is, is that, um, you know, they're right there. So I always remember my dad coming out when he was the day before he turned 74 in the battle for California textbooks where, you know, he's 74 years old. He spent decades in another country. He still hadn't said publicly out loud outside of our family that he was Dalit. And so before the California Board of Education, he gave his testimony and came out. And it moved everybody in that room. Everybody was crying, you know. Wow. And my mom, you know, she's always been part of the movement. She's like cooked for hundreds of people. She's hosted like hundreds, you know, so many activists over the years. And she taught me the power of love as an organizing principle. Um, because it's hard, you know, you know, in this work, you know, when you are speaking truth, when you're holding contested histories, there's so much violence directed at you. And it's not enough to, to just resist. You need to be rooted in something that's generative and that's rooted in life. And my mom taught me that, you know, when you look at these very deep, violent um, uh, lineages we have in historical pain that we have in the South Asian context, the remedy of that is empathetic witness and love, you know? And I, I feel like I learned that as a core lesson from my mother. So they're with me and as a family, we're united and they're so proud of me. And that pride really helps me go forward, even on those dark days when you see that, you know, umpteenth threat or, you know, another funny thing people always say is that I'm, you know, you know, then Maury, she's a front for terrorist people. And, you know, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, I feel sorry for those people that are trapped in their trauma bubbles, you know, because, you know, there is actually such healing in being in loving connection with other people, you know, mm. and 
So I learned that from my family and their love really is the foundation for everything that I do. It's very powerful. Uh, you mentioned Equality Labs. So in the last few years, I've seen your name make headlines and I wanted to talk about what is Equality Labs and what can Equality Labs tell us about the state of caste discrimination in America? Well, Equality Labs is a Dalit feminist civil rights organization that works on the rights of the caste oppressed. And we're one of the largest um, uh, civil rights organization that works on caste equity um, in North America. We have like over 140,000 members across all of our platforms. And for our work, you know, we really believe that, you know, we really make that connection between racial justice, caste equity, and gender justice, because we may all be, you know, racialized as South Asians once we migrate, but, you know, it's a very fraught category because we have all of this historical trauma that we've never really remedied and tensions that come from language and faith and, um, and those, you know, past incidents of mass atrocity, you know, starting with caste, but also partition and, you know, genocide, whether it's the Sikh genocide or the Bangladeshi genocide or the Sri Lankan genocide, you know, we have so many genocides that we're never talking about, you know. So in many ways, like Equality Labs tries to bring together all these different strategies for us to build power, to um, you know, create safer institutions for all of us, but also to hold spaces where we can heal and really reckon with our historical violence and, and try to um, build you know, relationships of healing and reconciliation. Is there, is there a research aspect of it. Oh, yes, there is a research aspect. <laughs> nice save there. <laughs> yes. One of the things that we are known for is our community-based research. And we have amazing Dalit feminist scholars that have uh, created some amazing content. And one of the most you know, landmark works that we've done is a survey about caste in the United States, which right. documented um, you know, caste in um, America. And it was so hard. I cannot tell you how hard it was to do this survey because at the time that we did it um nobody was you know, nobody would um entertain um the many many anecdotal stories that caste oppressed people were sharing about caste discrimination and um and i we were just coming out of the california textbooks and i remember talking to one of the board members there and she was like you know your stories are fabulous first of all they're stories of discrimination they're not fabulous but she said your stories are fabulous the thing is is that you don't have data and what i realized as a brown person is that you know in order to speak the language of policy you have to speak in the number of quantitative and qualitative data mm. And so that was the main reasons why we conducted this survey. And it was me and my colleague, Dr. Mari Zwick-Maitri. And, you know, and we tried to find academics that would work with us. But at the time, it was not a popular thing to talk about caste in the academic realm. It was actually, you know, enough to basically make sure that you wouldn't get moved forward in your academic career. So we did it ourselves as a quality labs, you know, we funded it through our credit cards and we had a network of volunteers that helped us all across the country. And we reached out to major institutions. So we'd reach out to like temples and good waters, cultural associations, um, community organizations, and whoever took it, took it. You know what I mean? Like we were not trying to, um, you know, only interview a select group of people. We, we put as far of a net as we could in terms of that survey. 
But at the time, and this is why I'm saying it's so, why it's so hard to build knowledge around topics related to caste. Even when we were data gathering, people assaulted us. So we would table and people would like, you know, send us class slurs. They would get mad at us and say that we're dividing the community. They would call our number that was related to and then leave slurs and stuff like that. You know, there was even orgs that went into existential crisis. And I remember this one org, they called us and they're like, you know, the board has to have a meeting about it because they think if we release the survey, we're going to divide our community. And we had to present to them and say, I hate to break it to you, you know, conducting a survey is not going to divide your community. The divisions are already there because caste depressed people in your organization approached us, asked us if we would deploy this, you know, if you guys could share it because they've already seen incidences of casteism. So it was just, it was such a learning process because, you know, you face violence even in the execution of the survey, but we did it. You know, this is the power of Dalit women. We figured it out, we got it done and we wrote a report and we changed the world. You know, just that one data set has transformed how we think about South Asian American identity in North America. You know, you can't really go around except for the networks of bigots that are there. It's general, I've seen more and more South Asians identify, you know, talking about the need for reconciliation around caste, doing caste equity acknowledgements, you know, at the opening of their events, you know, uh, making sure that they're intentionally thinking about having intercaste and interfaith panels um, when they're talking about things referencing South Asian identity. So it's it's been like a sea change. Like, I think if we were to run this survey now, we'd get even more remarks because people are more aware, they're more confident, and more and more Dalits are out all across the country, which is incredible. What did the survey reveal? Well, uh, you know, our survey at the time, and this was in 2016, um, the data was pretty damning. You know, one in four Dalits said that they had experienced um, physical and verbal assault. One out of three um, said that they had experienced educational discrimination. In America. Yeah, in America. And two out of three experienced discrimination in their workplace. And that data puts us, you know, as one of the largest... The, the groups that face the largest discrimination amongst Asian Americans in the United States. So it's pretty wild that, you know, Dalit people are experiencing this level of exclusion. And it's funny that you asked me that because every time I read that data set, someone's like, is that in the United States? And I'm like, yes, that is in the United States. So, you know, we're in this moment right now where on top of having an unprecedented amount of caste depressed Americans coming forward, you also have these seminal legal cases, you know, so the state of California suing the Cisco Corporation and you know, hundreds of workers suing BAPS temples, you know, six temples so far uh, for trafficking them, paying them a dollar an hour and calling them worms, you know, and this all off the Lucky Bali Ready case, which was the first case um, that, you know, had to deal with caste and, you know, really politicized me. But it's, you know, again, we are seeing caste isn't just about interpersonal issues. It's about trafficking. It's about worker violations and it's about exploitation and it's unlawful. 
And, and I think this is why, given some of the gravity of some of the things that caste oppressed people are speaking about, you know, we're in this other historical moment where caste oppressed people are working to fight, you know, to change laws, to make all institutions safer for all workers. And, you know, to see right now, I think we're at like 40 institutions that have added caste as a protected category. And we're now in the middle of a campaign in Seattle to see if the first city in the United States will add caste as a protected category. You were mentioning about the um, California textbooks. Can we talk about that? I would love to talk about that. Um, well, what would you like to know? I wanted to know about how language, which seems very such a small thing, plays such a big part in in the movement. Well, it's so funny because, you know, so the California textbook, that campaign was so personal to me because I grew up in California. Right. And um, and I loved learning about caste as a caste depressed person in my school because I was like, oh, I know the caste pyramid. I learned about this. I know what caste I am. And I liked having to be able to have a, an open conversation about it with my other classmates because I finally had a platform within which to share what was going on. So it really made me mad that, you know, this has become one of the issues that dominant caste bigots want to do is erase history. You know, and some of the things that they wanted to do was to one say um, that uh, they wanted to erase the word Dalit so that there was no <laughs> even mention of who we were as a people. They wanted to um, take out any discussion of caste uh, because they said that, you know, caste doesn't exist. And, you know, actually there's some usefulness with the system of Varna, you know, and that it's a choice when obviously no one would choose to be a slave. So what are you talking about? Um, they also wanted to tamper with like the origin stories of other religions. So they would, they didn't, they wanted to take out the fact that Sikhism started as a resistance to Brahmanism. Um, and I'm sure Guru Nanak is like rolling in his graves when he's hearing that. Um, they also um, uh, wanted to say that Hinduism was not patriarchal. And, um, and they wanted to make the Sarasvati River, which is a mythical river in the Vedas, an actual river in the textbooks, <laughs> which was also pretty wild, you know, because there's been historical attempts by Saffron folks to make the Indus Valley be the Indus Sarasvati Valley so that they can claim that that Vedic river, um, the Sarasvati is actually the origin of the Harappa Mohenjandaro things, you know, so it's just it's it's challenging you know you have a lot of people that want to make arguments that are that are rooted in emotion but not evidence and mm -hmm. so you know in terms of the california textbook committee they had scholars from reputable institutions from stanford from harvard that were the leading experts of south asia in north america giving them very well researched points that you know are consensed upon ideas about South Asia, its history, you know, and formations related to caste and different religions. And then you have a group of ideologues that want to erase it because they don't like their origin story. And then even worse, creating like this really baked, cooked up idea that Hindu children are being bullied because caste is being taught. And that's just an absurd proposition because I've never met a bully who reads a book before they, they punch you in the face, you know? Bullies and bullying is dealt with psychosocial problems, right? You deal, you don't deal with it by erasing history. You know, right. and that was the very same argument. And then the even crazier part about this, which I think really needs to be known in terms of brown history, 
is the architect of this campaign was this professor named Dr. Shiva Bajpai, who was a professor emeritus at Cal State Northridge. And he would write like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages about how caste didn't exist. And that, you know, it's certainly not here in the United States. It helped us survive the British, you know, it was like a useful function um, and helped us endure in that way. Um, and then, um, and, and after he would write this statement, cast doesn't exist in the United States, he omitted that he was the board chair of the Brahmin Samaj of North America. Wow. <laughs> so if cast doesn't exist in the U.S., why is there a Brahmin Samaj of North America? Tell me. And why is he the board chair doing these shenanigans? Yikes. Yikes, indeed. That's why we got a lot of work in terms of the South Asian diaspora. Why do you think there's so much resistance? I can understand uh, resistance in India, but in America, what is what is feeding caste the system, and and why is there so much pushback and resistance in the work that you're doing? Well, so I actually tried to take like a very deep uh, approach to that conversation, you know, because at, at this point now, I've had you know many years watching. Uh, the fragility of dominant caste people. And it is legendary. You know, there are things that I've seen in these public testimonies, which are absurd. Like, I remember this one woman from this one county hearing, who made this statement where she said, Santa Clara County, are you ready to have the blood of Hindus on your hand? You know, do you want me to wear the star of, do you want me to wear my cast like the star of David on my shoulder? Are you ready for Santa Clara to be ground zero for Hindu genocide? Are you ready? And, you know, the way she was talking, she was just like whipping herself up into more and more anxiety. And just taking a step back, what were we talking about? Adding caste as a protected category. That's it. But why did she go to a survival level, you know, place in her nervous system? And same thing with this experience that I had in Google, where, you know, you had dominant caste Hindus write in things like, I'm afraid for my life. Hold on. Before you talk about Google Talk, maybe you should explain the context of what happened. Uh, oh, yeah. with your I, will, Talk. I will. I will. I'm okay. going to go into a whole Google thing. But I, I just want to point that phrase out. I'm afraid for my life if this person speaks. Right. And the thing is, is that I've never met anybody who has died from a DEI talk, you know, but that's how scared people are to hear a cast depressed person speak, to be in equity with them. And so when I started to look for answers around why dominant cast people were behaving like that, um, I really, I came across the work of indigenous thinkers like Eduardo Duran and Maria, Maria Braveheart and black thinkers like Resma Menachem and Rhonda McGee and Ruth McKing. And what they did is they talked about how the body and intergenerational trauma is actually a big part of the ways the privileged and oppressed people show up. And in fact, Eduardo Duran and Resma Menachem talk about something called the soul wound. Um, and they're talking about in the context of race and I'm talking about in the context of caste, but with soul wounds, you have a wound in you. That's not just about your personal pain, but which is connected to the lineage of historical trauma that you might experience. And the oppressed have one way that we hold it and the privileged have another. And I think with the privileged, you know, their whole, they have such amount of um, a lack of visibility to their own caste stress, that just a small amount of it is enough to trigger their nervous systems to go into survival level um, functioning, you know, fight, freeze or flee. 
um, especially if a Dalit is going to be in equity with them. So there's a lot of training that dominant caste people have to do in order to be in authentic inner, inner faith and um, uh, intercaste relationships. And I think with caste oppressed people, we just carry that stress and it starts to eat us up on the inside. So we have a, a bunch of, you know, we have some of the worst health indicators and the average age of mortality for Dalit women is 39, you know? So I was wow. really conscious about this when I wrote the book because I want our people to heal, you know? I mean, you know, we have a planet that's in distress. South Asia is a region that is, you know, subsumed by climate catastrophe, you know, is like the biggest waste of human capital. So why are we sitting around with this ancient system like a noose around our neck? Why don't we heal? Why don't we return to each other and try to unleash each, unleash each other's potential? But to do that, it's not about just a book. It's not about a workshop. You got to do that inner work to like really unlearn your Brahmanism and your caste supremacy. And, and that takes a lot of foresight to do that. Let's let's move to the Google Talk. The Google Talk. The Google dun, talk. Dun, dun, dun. That was probably you were all over the news. Uh, it was and I saw an, and you and the senior manager of, yes, who, who invited you to do a talk about caste discrimination at Google, but you got canceled. Not not you got canceled, but your your talk got I canceled. Got at by you got uninvited, yeah. and then you made the headlines. You and so did she. Uh, the New Yorker, a bunch of other articles in the states. I, in 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 a sense, it kind of brought attention to the whole caste discrimination. So it, there was a little victory in that. Um, what happened? Well, I mean. You know, the funny thing is, is that, you know, every April is Dalit History Month. And already, I've already spoken at Google about CAST before this incident happened. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that's that. the funny part. I recorded a public video called CAST DEI for Google. So that's why there was no sense that this was going to be controversial. However, there was, you know, a small um, activated network of bigots who did not want to hear about caste equity. And the funny thing is they're not even in the department that this talk was supposed to happen. So they were just causing trouble just to cause trouble. And they wrote in things like, I'm afraid for my life. You know, you can't have this person, da, 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 da. And, you know, um, and, you know, I think Google didn't know what to do and they chose to side with bigots. And the irony is, is that Google management, you know, especially Google news management could not discern disinformation from, you know, the facts. Mm -hmm. And, but I think what they ended up doing was, um, you know, exploding the conversation about caste and tech even further, especially once, you know, um, Tunisia came forward after she resigned, you know, in the wake of all of the casteism that she saw. So, you know, it's, it, it was a pretty serious thing and it launched this with this conversation across so many different platforms and alphabet workers union really took up this issue because Tunisia was such a beloved worker organizer in the company. So when she was basically, you know, pushed out because of this issue, thousands of workers around the world rallied. And to this day, AWU is standing strong for caste. In fact, they just wrote a statement to, um, uh, the folks at, um, uh, the Seattle City Council because of how much they believe in this work. 
Any apologies from Google? Any any response from Google? No, Sundar Pinchai still needs to give me that call. <laughs> but um, but I'm I'm not waiting about it because the company isn't just about him. It's about thousands of workers who disagree with his lack of a position around caste. And and I think that's what we're seeing is that caste has become a workers' rights issue around the world, where they're taking it to management and saying we don't want our workplaces to be unsafe. Add caste as a protected category now. How does caste discrimination work in the workplace for people who don't know? Well, I think that it really depends on the industry that you're in. But, you know, wherever South Asians go, they bring they bring caste with them. And depending on the industry that you're in, usually, you know, one dominant caste person will bring will build a pipeline to basically hire, you know, within um, their caste networks. So in, in industries like tech, you know, there's a thing called internal referral. People just refer their families and friends and caste networks until whole departments become homogenous. And um, and cast oppressed people, you know, really suffer in those environments because there's open usage of cast castlers. Um, uh, you know, there's bullying, intimidation, um, attempts to you know out people. There's even sexual harassment, demotion, and termination. So it's it's really hard. Um, and I think this is why so many cast oppressed people stay in the closet because it's not just about losing your job. If you're on an H-1 visa, it could also mean that you lose your immigration status. Right, right. But also once you're outed, because the network of managers is so small, particularly in an industry like tech, um, you're outed for the rest of your life, you know, so it could impact your job prospects, you know, forever down the line, you know, which is why it is so amazing to see so many cast oppressed people come out around the country because they're braving their financial livelihood. They're, they're braving their ability to stay in this country um, in order to speak truth to power and to get cast added as a protected category. So this is an incredible moment for, um, you know, uh, cast equity and for the civil rights of cast oppressed people. And, you know, it's a powerful thing to see this transformation in the diaspora and it, it certainly has global ramifications. Speaking of the diaspora, when it comes to caste discrimination, is it, there's immigrants and then there's children of immigrants. And I wanted to know, is caste discrimination just as much prevalent in, in the diaspora than it is in the old generation in America? You oh, know, the yeah, children, the sure. people, the kids who grew up here in America, who've never been to India, who don't really speak the language properly. Uh, do they still have that caste um, lens? It really depends on like where you grow up, like, but I would say, yes, it just looks different, you know, New York, California, the big cities in America and Canada. I think if you grow up in a bedroom community where there's a ton of South Asians around you, the children reflect the, the, the bigotry of their parents. So we have had reports of children seeing open slurs, um, you know, in the schoolyard, people being bullied because of being from a different caste or different religion, um, segregation of parent groups on the basis of caste. So the Kshatriya parents group, the Brahmin uh, WhatsApp group, you know, um, which is really terrible, right? Um, and, and we've also seen that 
you know, cast would manifest in different ways. So someone might say, oh, I'm not casted, but they know that they're ready. They know that they're a Yadav or a Brahmin and their their family might be part of those cultural associations. And so they learn certain norms and certain caste pride and, and they don't realize that not everybody is like them. So taking the Punjabi community, there's a huge issue of Juts being discriminatory towards people who are Chamar. And, mm-hmm. but so much of Punjabi pop culture is focused around the jet identity, right? So it's like, it's going to look different, you know, but it's there. And I think by talking about it, people really start to unearth what does it look like for them in their context? And, and part of the reason why I wrote my book, The Trauma of Cast, is I wanted us to be able to practice self-examination with compassion. And, you know, because there's like, whether you're oppressed or you're privileged, there's shame, you know, there's shame, you know, our, fa- our families don't talk about this painful history. And, um, but what we are experiencing is a wound that connects us because of violence. And so whether or not you are the body that has received violence or the body that is witnessing or inflicting violence, there's shame about it. And, there, and you know, and I, I'm thinking about this because I've talked to dominant caste people who have taken our unlearning caste supremacy workshop and they can't reconcile with their family's like background, you know, because when they go back home, they see the way that they treat the workers. They know that there's sexual exploitation of Mm. some of the younger women that work there. And it's just common because it's like, that's what people do to domestic workers, to agricultural workers. And you can't say anything. And if you do say something, people say, oh, what do you know? You're an ABCD, you know, this, you're not from here. So just keep quiet. But actually, I think that we're all moral and ethical beings. And we know when a boundary around life is being crossed. But what Brahmanism does is it trains us to look away or to stay quiet when we see something that is so obviously wrong. And I think that's the training that is the wound and the privilege is that sometimes they've denied so much their humanity in order to make a logic out of what they're seeing in their dominant caste networks. Um, that they don't know up from down. And to actually start questioning it means you start to question some of your foundational assumptions about who you are as a person. And I think that's okay. Discomfort is okay. You know, but what is not okay is to let your uncomfortability with your historical truth and your discomfort with being questioned about your assumptions around your understanding of history be the, be the block that stops the flow of civil rights and progress. And that's what's happening right now is that, you know, the fragility of dominant caste people is the main obstacles to why we're not getting, um, you know, uh, protections for caste oppressed people, you know, because uh, really, you know, it's really funny because if you've ever been part of these hearings, the opposition always says like, you know, these, if you add caste as a protected category, it will target me as a South. They, they, first of all, they don't like to use the term South Asian. They want to say it'll target me as a Hindu or it'll target me as an Indian American. And the funny thing is, is that's not rooted in any understanding of how the law works. Protected categories only speak to the people that self-identify them when they're making an investigation or a claim. So put very simply, if you're not a bigot, you won't be impacted. <laughs> you just have to not discriminate. Mm-hmm. But you have people who are fighting for the right to discriminate because if they don't preserve it, 
they're worried at what they have to self-examine within themselves even more. And, and I think that's why um, trauma is a really important lens to look at it because there are tools to work with that historical trauma as a privileged person. And some of them I include in my book. There's like meditations, there's, you know, somatic exercises and worksheets. But, you know, what I've seen is, is that people are hungry to leave behind privilege, you know. As many, you know, it might feel like the bigots, like, you know, because they're very loud, um, but they're actually small in number. And you sense it because when you go to any of these hearings, or you're part of these larger conversations, they're losing the cultural war. And, you know, I don't see like in the younger generation a desire to be attached to systems like caste because mm-hmm. it's depressing and it's violent and nobody wants that. Right. At the end of your book, you have all this data. Um uh, across South Asia. And I'm going to read one. This is our time now. Every day, three Dalits are murdered, two are raped, and several houses are burned. A crime against a Dalit happens every 18 minutes. This is where we are now. And if you look at the history of the subcontinent, there has been so much uh, movements and, and courageous people who have stood up against caste and the privileged. And this is how far they've gotten how do you still have hope in, in today's time? And how do you, do you think that caste can be defeated in America? hundred percent caste will be, <laughs> I don't know if I'd use the term will be defeated, but I think we can end caste discrimination uh, by making it explicit that it's illegal. You know, and I feel like we're already winning the cultural conversation around that because, again, you see caste everywhere in all of the newspapers and you have more and more caste-oppressed people coming out in their institutions. That was inconceivable, you know, even, you know, seven or eight years ago. So where we've moved the needle in the South Asian diaspora, it's like, you know, tremendous, you know. Um, but I also think that, you know, I get a lot of hope because I, I, I am rooted in my ancestors and I feel like I am connected to a thousand generations of love because, you know, experiencing the deprivation that they had, they had to, they had to be so loving about a daughter they would have in the future. Think of all the sacrifice, think of all that they had to endure to ensure that the family line continued to create someone like me. So I just, I don't ever feel like we're in this journey alone. We have each other and we have our ancestors. And what I hear overwhelmingly over and over and over again, you know, people are exhausted of systems of exclusion. You know, I mean, we came into this in 2019, starting with the genocidal project in India, going to, you know, a pandemic, then uh, an uprising, and then right. a coup. And that's still, I still didn't get into 2022. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and I think that you see that everybody's kind of held together with like bubble gum and toothpicks. Like we are, we have we've hit our threshold already. And so when you think about what do we need to do to get rid of all of the things that are a drag on our healing and um, being able to be prepared for the new challenges that are gonna confront our species with increased climate volatility. And caste is the most unnecessary baggage. We don't need it, you know? There's nothing that we get from practicing caste. However, I've seen great healing from people who work in intercaste spaces Um, Once they've gone through their own journey to acknowledge their caste lineage, understand what pain exists there, and be authentic and ethical in the ways that they then interact with other people. And and I think that's, 
everything, you know, seeing people come back to themselves and come back to each other. It's a tremendous thing. I certainly wish I, as a young child, had grown up in a South Asian community that had that, you know, Mm -hmm. and this vision of an intercaste, multiracial, interfaith South Asian community is a vision of life as opposed to the death cult of the people that want to put us all through a genocide, you know, so I think we have an option now. We choose life or we go along on this plan for death that, you know, by people who are kind of held hostage to their own trauma worlds of ethno-nationalism. Uh, my last question is, you know, what are what are the next battles you're fighting? Well, or current I, battle? I think that our goal right now is to get cast as a protected category in every institution everywhere. So, you know, for listeners who are thinking about ways that they can be part of this, you know, think right. about can you add caste as a protected category in your institution? Can you help build awareness and celebrate events like Dalit History Month and you know, Dr. Embedkar's birthday and share caste abolitionist ancestors and figures so that people speak about them and know about them and recognize them as part of our lineages here in the diaspora? You know, and then I would also, um, you know, encourage people to follow Quality Labs. You know, you can find us at equalitylabs.org, join our mailing list, follow, follow us on our socials. And if you can't take the Unlearning Cast Supremacy Workshop, it's a very healing process. It opens your eyes up to history. I know that this is the Brown History IG, um, you know, uh, podcast. And the thing that I found is that you know, as South Asians, we lose so much when we don't have an accurate understanding of our history, you know, because, and and we're effective to be held hostage to our trauma if we don't have access to our roots. So we need to really understand um, the arc of history because there is one lens of history where you understand the history of the subcontinent of the history as the history of revolution and counter-revolution. And this was an idea that Dr. Ambedkar spoke a lot about because, as soon as there was, you know, Brahminism and the establishment of the caste system, there was resistance from the caste oppressed. And it may have taken different forms over time. Like maybe it was in the founding of Brahminism or in the founding of the Sikh tradition, but it keeps coming back, you know, it, it finds other ways, you know, because we haven't really done the work to get it out of our bodies. You know, we might think about how do we get it out of our minds? We might think about how do we get it out of our spirit, but it's still in our bodies. And that's where we have tremendous work that we can do and see, let's see if this will take us to the threshold for eliminating it in our lifetime. Awesome. Uh, Good luck to everything. And thank you so much for doing this. This was a, this was a great conversation. You're welcome. Thank you so much. And I will talk with you later.